On today's episode of Untold Stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast, I have an in-depth conversation with a lady who is a prime example of how if you start at the bottom of an organization, you could one day lead that same organization. Stick around. Welcome to the Untold Stories of the Caribou Chilcotin Coast, the podcast that specifically covers the people involved in promoting tourism in this region of the province. I'm your host, Jason Ryle, and thanks again to you for tuning into this episode. Many regions of the province, and even the world, all claim to have incredible tourism viewscapes and attractions that entice you to come out and visit. Everything from creeks to peaks, trails and parks, dining and dancing, the whole lot. But the element that really sets any destination apart, and the part that we're incredibly proud of in the Caribou-Chilcotin Coast, are the people that you meet along the way. One of the people I've had the pleasure of meeting before in my time living here and uh, being involved in, uh, in, in the community of Williams Lake is Judy Campbell, former CEO of the historic town of Barkerville, uh, UNESCO Heritage Sites, and uh, I think it's fairly safe to say, longtime resident of the Caribou, Judy. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Good. Thanks for making the time to join me today. Oh, I'm delighted to be asked. So I I just want to start off with, uh, as I have in uh, previous episodes, of letting people know what I know about you, which really isn't a whole lot, to be fair. Uh, You and I have met, uh, I think we discussed this before, about five years ago, while you were still with Barkerville. Um. And I know that's uh, a little tidbits of information. So you started with the community or uh, the, the town, the, the historic site of Barkerville. Was it 40 years ago? Uh, well, I'm, I'd have to do the math. But yes, probably. It was 1974, the summer of 74. It was my first real job. And uh, I got a seasonal job there in the curatorial department at Barkerville, helping um, a wonderful man named Clarence Wood put in displays, some of which are actually still still there. Um, and that fall, because I, I did have a university gr- degree, I was kept on to develop education programs. And at that time, the there were schools visiting Barkerville, but they weren't being offered anything. Basically, they would just, the school would arrive, the kids would get out of the bus and run up to the candy store and Mm-hmm. You know, basically, there wasn't anything formal for them. And so we started with organizing just straight tours. But that wasn't really, I didn't think that that was hands-on enough for elementary school children. So um, that winter, I think it was, I went to a course on education programs for museums and became came back totally inspired. So we started to develop what is now known as the Wendell House Program, the Schoolhouse Program, the Early Justice Program over the next few years. And, and they were all very hands-on, live-in style programs for children, even more so than they are now, because it, originally the Wendell House Program, the, the children were all given costumes and, and they all really became part of the experience. Oh, yeah. But it has evolved over time. But y- yes, that was sort of my first introduction to the site so uh, something else i was told was that while you started or what 
I, I guess what you left to go to Barkerville, you were still in school at the time, weren't you, to, to start working in Barkerville? Uh, no, I was actually a graduate at that time. Okay. Um, I later went back and did a master's degree. Ah, I see. Sort of in, in one of my hiatuses from Barkerville, I, I um, did a master's degree in planning and um, basically in heritage and tourism development at the University of Calgary. I see. And had you ever been to or known of Barkerville while you were going to school? Um, my first introduction to Barkerville was actually in, I think it was the summer of 1972. I was actually working on an archaeology dig at Punchaw Lake, which is out the other side, sort of um, uh, out sort of between, out, I guess it's in the, you'd say it was in the Blackwater, in the Blackwater. Country, okay. So it's out on that side of the Fraser. And, uh, our whole crew, being interested in history, obviously, um, came up to Barkerville for a visit, for a weekend visit. And I just fell in love with Barkerville. And I also fell in love with Wells because we stopped in Wells and we went into the Wells Hotel pub. So this is, this, I think it was the summer of 72. And my dog jumped out of the back of my pickup truck and came into the pub and lay down <laughs> under the table. And nobody said, nobody even raised an eyebrow. So I thought, okay, this is a very cool place. <laughs> no kidding, yeah. So, yeah, I ended up moving to Wells that fall. And um, I, I just sort of, by luck, got a job the following spring in Barkerville. That must have been an incredible time. Like, I, I can only imagine Wells in its heyday, and not that it was its heyday in the 70s, but it, it is still, like, it's a remote community, uh, very... Resilient is probably a, a, a. I think it's a, a really good word. Yeah, a, a polite way of putting yeah. it. The people of Wells, or anyone that's ever spent any time or lived in Wells, uh, recognizes that you do have to be. Uh, there's a, a level of independence, but with that comes a little bit of. Is it fair to say redneckery? <laughs> I, I suppose so. Maybe I. I, I think it's. I don't, and I, I don't mean that in a yeah, negative way. Yeah, I know. I, I'm not quite sure what it takes to live in Wells. Um, but certainly when, uh, so I moved there that fall and um, Wells at that time, it was six years after the, the mine, the big mine had closed the Caribou Gold Quartz, which had amalgamated with Isla Mountain by that time. And, and, and so the company basically left the town in 67. So I got there in 73, uh, I think the fall of 73. And, um, and it, things were very, very depressed. And you could buy a house there for $50. $50? Yeah, I kid you not. And we rented a house for $20, which I later bought the following. So in the spring of 1974, I bought this little three-room house, which I still live in. It doesn't look quite the same, for $300. Inflation. Yeah, and I used to love to tell people that I paid more for my chainsaw than I did for my house. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, th I think you're right about the independence. It definitely takes a bit of independence because, you know, I had to, as, as did many of my compatriots, had to, um, you know, get firewood and split firewood mm -hmm. and um, uh, yeah, learn, be, re be learn, resilient. Yeah, basically learn how to do all the, I mean, it wasn't total wilderness, but we had to learn a lot of those kinds of wilderness skills. Sure. Basically, the house I lived in, I lived with no running water or electricity for about 10 years. So, 
for 10 years. Yeah, so. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> and, and it just goes to speak to the, uh, the, the pioneering, um, elements, I guess, of people, uh, even still in the seventies. And I think even still today, it's fair to say that, um, you know, a rolling uh, power outages or power outages mm-hmm. period, um, making sure that a water is a secured source. Those are still fairly common issues in in rural communities, uh, especially. And the smaller they get, the more mm, troublesome is not the right word, but the more I, I guess resilient you have to mm-hmm. be to be prepared for these kinds of inevitabilities. I think that's really true across our region in some of the more remote areas where. I mean, there's no cell phone coverage in Wells, and and uh, I remember when Nasco didn't even have phones. So, you know, I mean, um, people definitely uh, need to be able to get along without uh, without too much help from the outside. So, uh, when it comes to the concept of Barkerville, you know, you, you started well before it became this UNESCO heritage site, which. I'm I'm imagining um, the title came with some some kinds of supports. Right. What was Barkerville like back in the seventies? Because uh, I was still quite young, and had, I mean, we were all quite young in the seventies. But what was it like to work there? Was it was well, it really it, just very raw? It, yeah, it was run by um, Parks and Recreation, and I should point out I'm pretty sure that Barkerville is not yet a UNESCO heritage site. Oh, I'm sorry. But Ed has um, initiated the process for to have it considered to be a UNESCO. But it is a National Historic Site of Canada. Okay, thank yeah. you for correcting me. Yeah. So it was um, run by, I think it was a ministry, it was run directly by government, by a ministry called Parks and Recreation. And um, it was lumped in with all the other parks that were not historic parks. So there was always this... Um, the, this kind of uh, uh, push and pull between parks that were wanted picnic tables and parks that wanted curatorial uh, supplies, sure. um, and it was it what you know we had a a man who was basically the curator, but he didn't have that title of curator. I think you know I can't remember. He was yeah, a recreational, yeah. Well, he was a recreational assistant or something, you know. <laughs> So it was a bit, always a bit of a, a struggle to get resources for the museum aspect of Barkerville. Um, and certainly there weren't the facilities that there are now. And when I think about our, our muse- the museum side of Barkerville, I mean, um, the collection was just out in the buildings in piles, unsorted piles oh, of dear. things that people had donated. And without any order and uh luckily around uh 1990 we uh, a man named Bill Quackenbush became curator and I think you probably have met Bill and he he just attacked that situation very uh and was very successful in in climbing through all of this stuff and getting it organized to the point where it could even begin to be cataloged and we could even begin to see what we had in our collection, which it turns out we have many, many um, significant items in that collection mm-hmm. that, that that have worldwide significance. So, absolutely, yeah, and yeah. worldwide is is definitely uh, an element I want to touch on. But uh, I think maybe for the benefit of some people who don't know what Barkerville is all about, can you maybe describe for someone that has never been or never heard of Barkerville what exactly this idea is 
Sure. Barkerville was a gold rush town, essentially, that dates back to 1862 when uh, gold, gold was first discovered in British Columbia, Columbia in the eight, late 1850s. And probably the dis- that discovery is why we have a Canada from sea to sea. Because Britain was probably not really that interested in, in the colony. And was you know they were losing interest and they didn't want to pour any more money into it until they realized that, oh my God, there's this gold rush going on. Mm-hmm. And that's, that changed the whole tenor of things. And of course... BC later became more the colony. It became a province. It joined Canada. So all of a sudden, we were we were linked to the east. I mean, that's a very oversimplified oh, version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, essentially, that's that's the the key to its significance. But the other key is that on the town site itself, there are um, about 150 buildings. Most, I think, about 70 percent of those buildings date from uh, before the turn before 1900 mm-hmm. or from the 1930s back because there was a second gold rush in the 1930s. So so there's a lot of historic buildings. Most of them are in situ, meaning they're still, they haven't been moved there they, from another site. They, they're still standing where they were built unless they were moved historically. Um, After the fact. Yeah, well, no, they moved, they themselves in the early days moved a lot of buildings around, so... So, sorry, the, the idea, or, or Barkerville itself, uh, its origins date back to just before Confederation. Right, right. And again, actually, uh, a personality in Barkerville, um, uh, Dr. Carroll, was quite instrumental in, in promoting the idea that BC would become part of the new Confederation of Canada. And of course, there's the story of how Barkerville celebrated the very first Dominion Day outside right. of Canada, but mm-hmm. but uh, the Canadians on the creek celebrated Dominion Day on July 1st in 1868. So, so when it comes to the national uh, and historical importance of Barkerville, uh, again, you mentioned this is a very high-level view, but Barkerville is instrumental uh, I think it's fair to say in the development and evolution towards confederation for the country. Yes, I think it, it it definitely played a strong role. And then since then, so that was its early its early beginnings, and then things fell into decline through the eighteen nineties. Uh, population drifted away, uh, but in the nineteen thirties, during the when everywhere else was depressed, both Wells and Barkerville we're experiencing a second gold rush because the price of gold was strong. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was kind of, that's when wells came into being. So that, that was another um, important era in also in Barkerville's history. And in the 1950s, the late 1950s, it was made into a provincial park. It was a centennial project, actually, 1958. So that secured the site of Barkerville for for the people of British Columbia and for the people of Canada. And then it's developed since then. And so uh, so from a, a provincial park in the uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, how would you describe and can you take me through the story of how Barkerville has now come to be what it is? Well, I think it's been a, a slow constant process of development and it's been um, highly dependent on government resources. So 
it would be sort of two steps forward, one back, depending on the, <laughs> you know, the climate in the province for supporting heritage. But generally, I would say making steady progress towards developing its resources and, and also making them available to the public, which is, you know, the main, the main idea. Um, but then I guess in the uh, last decade, in the, in, I can't remember when this started. I think it was around 2002 or 2003. The province decided that it did not want to run heritage sites directly. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a long and, and somewhat painful process of um, devolving the site to community management. And um, I say painful because there was a lot of controversy about it. And, um, but in the end, I think the process was very good because all of the stakeholders in the region stepped forward. All of the, the mayors from, from Williams Lake, Quinnell, Prince George, 100 Mile, and yeah. Clinton, I think that were the five, or in Wells. In Wells. I, yeah. They all stepped forward and said, we need to form a, a task force and we need to figure out how to make this work. And I actually sat on that task force, and I think it went on for about 18 months, and we met every second week or something. It was just brutal, the meetings. (laughs) But we did hammer out an amazing agreement with the province, uh, which has subsequently resulted in in what we have today with the Barkerville Heritage Trust, which I think has been, you know, a fabulous um, organization and... uh, just really a good way to manage Barkerville. I think the Barkerville Heritage Trust, for, uh, again, from what I know of it, has done, I agree, a fantastic job of uh, continuing on to be able to tell the story of Barkerville because, um, oddly enough, it seems like, uh, and, and I don't want to delve too far into the politics, the air quotes of politics of it, but that our own provincial government doesn't recognize or didn't at the time recognize the worth and the value of Barkerville to the, 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 uh, the creation of the province and its impact on Canada. That seems to be like a a really obvious disconnect. (laughs) And I, uh, I, I don't get it. And maybe it's just the infinite wisdom of government, which is uh, you know, always open for skepticism. Well, I, I, heritage seems to always be a uh, a hard sell when it comes to when it comes to funding and government. Heritage is not a favorite cause, unless, of course, you're in Cape Breton. Um, right, I just yeah. came back from uh, I was in uh, Cape Breton for Celtic Colors, and we could really learn a lesson in tourism in Cape Breton, which you probably know, uh, of course. I, yeah, yeah. I, I am aware, but, yeah. But it's amazing what they are doing, what they have done and what they are doing in Cape Breton with their, with their culture and their heritage and, and uh, making in, into not only something that is really preserving their culture and heritage, but something that is making them a lot of money. Well, and not only that, I think that there's a, a distinct difference. There's a stark contrast in the value of heritage from the East Coast and on the West Coast. I consider the, the West Coast that um, when people internationally think of Canada, there is at some point someone somewhere who goes, oh, Anne of Green Gables. 
and how <laughs> how international that is. And when they think of the West Coast, there isn't necessarily that kind of iconic person or character yeah. uh, for us to be able to draw from. Uh, we know of you know interesting and influential people, but that is the I think that's the stark contrast between East and West. I think that's our our marketing challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Because really, um, that's really all it would take to make Caribou Cameron or Billy Barker or one of the First Nations personalities, you know, into the same kind of figure. So you mentioned something that I, I want to try to drill down a little bit on, and that is in uh, First Nations, Indigenous people. And um, I know Barkerville has now committed to trying to be more reflective or inclusive of telling the complete story, the complete history right. of how it has come about. Is is that uh, a trend or is that a trend? Might, I don't mean to diminish the concept, but is that something we can expect to see more of, is attempts to try to tell the complete story? I hope so. I know um, it was something that Ed is... Is, is, has been very committed to Ed Coleman, the current CEO. It was something that uh, we talked about in my time, but we're never quite able to get through all of the other things that we had to deal with the initial startup of the Heritage Trust to kind of get to the point we could launch into something like that. But I think Ed has, has definitely developed the initial stages of this. And I know that the interpreters at Barkerville are very committed to telling the truth to interpreting the whole story. And I know there's a fine, because the whole story is not pretty. Right. The whole, there's a fine line, you know, when you're on, on the street as an interpreter to being his, entertaining and telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that's their challenge. And I think they do it very well. They take it very, very seriously. You know, the, the concept of, of telling the full stories. And we, we actually started that with our interpretation of Chinatown. And it's still a challenge um, to find someone in the Chinese community that is interested in taking that role on. And we've been very lucky with the, um, Ying Ying Chen, Dr. Chen, who has been heading up the Chinese programs in Barkerville for quite... Who had always also... She came to the area doing her PhD thesis on Gold Mountain. So we, and okay. then sort of has stayed on to kind of manage that. So that was our, our first step, I would say, into broadening the concept away from the strict white history, you know, yeah. what, the textbook history that we all were taught and to try to look at the broader perspectives. And so hopefully, and I'm not involved anymore, so I can't speak to it in depth, but I was very pleased to see you know, that we're moving and working in partnership with some of the local First Nations to tell their stories as well. I think that that's an attempt from uh, many organizations, Barkerville included, but not solely them, um, in trying to take the steps needed towards reconciliation that has been um, not asked for, but that has been the goal, I guess, of Indigenous people now from the time that, uh, I guess it's from uh, all along, is that reconciliation, uh, and I've had this conversation with others uh, from the Indigenous communities, and it's about inclusion mm-hmm. and to be able to tell full stories. Because like you said, when it comes to 
the history of uh, of Canada or really the history of anywhere, those indigenous stories, whether it's in Canada or the United States or anywhere else in the world, those indigenous stories are often not told because it is because of that cliche that history is written by the victors. Right. Which it shouldn't be looked at that way anymore. History is a reflection of what happened. That's what we would like it to be. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's what the, yeah. the, the overall goal is towards seeing more of this inclusion of telling the full story. So the challenge that we have kind of hinted on is that when it comes to being able to tell the full story, whether it's from Indigenous people or, like you said, the, the Chinese history, uh, is that because of different values, you think, um, is that racial values, uh, racial in the sense that, you know, Chinese and First Nations, the values that they place on heritage and history? Well, I think it lies in a, a couple of things. One is um, the idea, which I think is valid, that the white community can't really tell the story for someone else. You know, it should be coming out of the mouths of those descendants of the people that experienced it. With, with our experience in China, um, initially we, we knew we had this amazing collection of Chinese artifacts, but they were in Chinese. Oh. And not only that, but they were in an older version of Chinese, of Cantonese, that many people today did not read and understand. Okay. So it took some years to find a Chinese, and Yingying really was the one that... There was a, a few people, that, Dr. David Lai at University of BC uh, was interested, in, but it took time to sort of get the scholarship to kind of move forward with the documents. And at the same time, I think there wasn't an interest by the Chinese community in, say, Vancouver. There wasn't a particular interest in, in Barkerville because I don't think they knew about it. Oh. The reality of it, the situation, was many of the people who came went back to China. And although there are some families, the Keen family, for instance, in Quinell, um, the Hong family in Quinell, there were some families that um, were direct descendants of some of the initial people that came over. We, we still, you know, in terms of somebody that would step forward and provide interpretation... It was difficult. We just mm-hmm. didn't, we just, you know, there were several false starts and um, certainly there's been situations where we had um, a woman playing a, a, a one character woman, a white woman in Barkerville who we knew had had strong interactions with the Chinese community doing the interpretation from her point of view. Um, but what we really wanted was a Chinese person doing the interpretation. <laughs> sure. You yeah. know, so... Um, it's, that's been a bit of a struggle. So uh, j- just getting, the, building the, re- and I think with the First Nations community, it's building the relationships that allow people to step forward and tell their stories. Because you can't just go and say, well, I, you know, I'm the, give me yeah. your story. I'm the millionth person to ask for your story. You know, it has to come from the fact that you've built a relationship with people and they want to come to the site and they want to tell their story. 
And I think it also adds another layer of tourism value, if you will, to the story of if it's Barkerville, if it's uh, Fort Victoria, if it's uh, any other um, historical heritage connection to the province of BC, that there is that element that is or has been missing that now, because we're able to tell a bit more of a full story about what actually happened from different perspectives, because that's the part that has been missing, is including those other perspectives. So if I want to change gears with you a little bit, Judy, and that is to ask you a bit of a knuckleball question, and that is, what's the importance of Barkerville to the education community? Well, that's, um, that is so multifaceted. <laughs> I don't do anything small. <laughs> well, of course, Barkerville is on the curriculum, both I think in, I, it used to be, I'm not sure if this is still up to date, in grade five and also in grade 10. So it has a direct, the, the gold rush has a direct relationship to the BC curriculum. But it's much broader than that because there's so many other things that you could go to Barkerville to look for to, or to study. I mean, there's the whole mining and mining engineering. There's there's architecture. There's just so many different things that you could study in Barkerville, using Barkerville as a resource. And I think that that's one of the reasons that when I was there, we were trying to build such a strong relationship with UNBC was because there's just so many different things that you could mm-hmm. come. I mean, li- literature, or you know, there's just... I mean, I could name off all the yes. disciplines and, and, and you would find a, a way to, to go to Barkerville and look at that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of trying to draw that out of yeah. you is a little bit of a, a list of reasons or, or topics of why, from an educational perspective, right. why Barkerville is important in the education community. Because it one, it does delve a little bit with anthropology and the study of yep. you know, human kind. Archaeology. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, like you said, mining and engineering, yep. these are all things, uh, important elements that as we reflect on Barkerville and its history, that the message I don't want to lose, it, it, can, it comes back to that cliche that if we need to be students of history, otherwise we're doomed to repeat it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Well, I mean, even the environmental sciences, I mean, Barkerville, the miners came in, they made massive changes to the landscape. And, you know, how, how has that affected it? How is it recovered or mm-hmm. not recovered? There's, you know, as you say, you could list off the disciplines and you could go, oh, yes, well, we, you could come to Barkerville and, and study that. So, yeah, it's an incredible. And, and then, of course, there's the collections. This, there's the photographs. There's, you know, if you were interested in material culture, there's just, you know, it's an amazing resource. Mm-hmm. You still speak with passion about Barkerville, uh, even though you have been somewhat removed. Like you, you haven't been CEO now for about five, six years. Yeah, I, I left like in January. I think of two thousand fourteen was my last, my last days there. But you spent much of your professional career yeah. at Barkerville, so I guess it doesn't surprise me that you speak with such passion and, and conviction about it. Um, what is it? Actually, I'm going to ask a different story. Is there any truth to the story that I've heard that you left your decision on whether or not you were going to work at Barkerville up to the flip of a coin? No, that was whether or not I was going to um, move to Wells. Oh. So my then husband and I were, um, we had been in Vancouver and this was the 
fall after I'd worked on the archaeology dig and had the visit to Barkerville. And my husband had also visited Wells and Barkerville at, at some point, so he knew. So we were we wanted to be out of the city, go somewhere else, and be somewhere. And we weren't quite sure where, but we had spent some time in Bragg Creek, Alberta, which was at that time was a kind of a cool little place. Mm-hmm. So we flipped a coin between Wells and Bragg, Bragg Creek, Alberta, and Wells won. <laughs> and we we jumped in our what was it? it was a 1947 GMC three quarter ton truck that had a little cabin built on the back with a little wood stove. You can imagine this is 70s, remember? Yeah, yeah. And off we went to Barkerville. Well, to Wells in Barkerville. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so while you were living in in um, while you were living in Wells and spending time working in Barkerville. Um, it's kind of hard to separate Wells and Barkerville from uh, communities. Right. It's a very remote place. Did you have, surely you must have had some kind of run-in or encounter with wildlife. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And these are the kinds of stories that I want to draw from people that have lived here as well to, to paint some kind of a picture on what have you had to contend with. Well, luckily I have had... Nothing too negative. I have run into grizzly bears in close quarters, um, but but we both got out of there fine. How close quarters are we talking? Um, from me to um, <laughs> the couch there and so, the puppies. And uh, maybe 20, 22? 20, 30 feet, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was hiking, and uh, we were in a narrow valley, and I was going down the valley, I had two people with me and my dog, and um, the bear was coming up the valley. And I think it was a young grizzly bear, I think, because he seemed more curious than anything else. Okay. But we eyed each other up for quite a while, and there was a lot of snorting and snuffling and raising up on his hind feet and kind of doing this. And we were banging pots and pans, and then we kind of just edged around each other. (laughs) Gave you get each other a, yeah, a wide berth. Continue all our, on our way. <laughs> Don't start none. Yeah. Won't be none. Kind of. Yeah. Wow. So and then I've, I've run into black bears numerous times, but again, nothing, nothing's ever happened. It's always been. It's not uncommon in Wells and Barkerville area for moose to be in the neighborhood. Yes. Ever had any run-ins with uh, or encounters well, with them? I did. I wasn't there for this, but. Um, my dog had a run in with one and, oh and my dog was, um, I have my little house and I have a little house next to it called the tomato house. And there's about 20 or 20 feet between them. And a female moose was trying to come from the swamp up and go between my house to get to the mountain. And my dog was there and, and he, and she was tied, she was tied up to the porch and, and so she obviously barked at the moose and the moose attacked the dog. Oh dear. So who went under a willow bush and cowered. And my neighbor in the tomato house ran out and tried to scare the moose away, but the moose charged her. So she went back in the house. And so she did that a couple of times. And finally the moose got by the dog. Meanwhile, the moose had dug this huge hole in the yard right in front of where the dog was cowering under the bush by kind of going like this. Rooting at it with its front hooves. Rooting at it. Um, the dog was fine, but it turned out that we pieced the story together from other people who had seen different things, but it was a cow moose that had got separated from her calf, 
and the calf was coming also again up from the wetland up headed towards the mountain and had gone sort of a different route and the cow was sort of a bit frantic trying to get to the where the calf was and but then you know she'd chosen this route between our two houses and there was this dog there so so anyway I still have that hole in my yard that's never really been <laughs> filled in <laughs> and I just bought a sign actually recently that says beware of attack moose but everybody got through it fine. That's good. Yeah. yeah. No uh, No real negativity yeah. of those stories. That's, yeah. that's good. Uh, those are the kinds of stories that we like to share because we don't want to scare people away either. For international listeners who have thought about coming to visit the area, some come with this belief that they're going to arrive in the caribou and they're going to get out of their vehicle and going to be able to reach out and touch a bear or touch a moose or uh, you know, go hug a deer. And those aren't the cases. Yes, that wildlife is prevalent in our area. You're not guaranteed, but you're almost guaranteed yeah. to see uh, these kinds of animals. But it's not like you can... It's not one giant petting zoo. No, and actually the best way to see uh, wildlife for the visitor is to drive Highway 26 and not get out of their car, drive it slowly, especially in May and June. They're likely to see several black bears, possibly a grizzly, and definitely moose. Highway 26. Highway 26, Just but don't get out of your car. Just drive slowly, keep your eyes open. That's the highway between uh, Between Quinell and Barkerville. And Barkerville. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's great for wildlife viewing. A nice, I, safe way. I have driven that highway uh, a few times, and I can't think of a time when I haven't seen some kind of wildlife. Yeah. So uh, that's good advice. Yeah. So when we shine that light back on tourism and the importance of Barkerville to tourism, I, I want to delve a little bit more on that and maybe get a prediction out of you, if you can. In the foreseeable future, do you see... Any great changes uh, to the organization of Barkerville on its impact to tourism? Does anything need to change? Oh, well, I think um, I think the current organization with the Heritage Trust is very strong, and as long as it continues to get the strong regional support from the political entities within the region, which I think is key, the key elements. Um, and get, receives the funding that it needs, I think everything is good. And I think one of the keys to it getting the funding that it needs is having the five mayors, you know, stepping up to the plate and saying, look, this is our regional resource. Uh, because um, I, that was, that's been the struggle at Barkerville for many years, and, and it seems to have been less of a struggle the last few years. Is lack of political support? Well, lack of funding, and uh, which I think oh. is sort of the same thing. It I think when be. you, I think, I think when you have strong f- political support, you're you're more likely to get the funding that you need. Well, definitely. Yeah. And you and I both have you know municipal government backgrounds now. Right. You spent some time actually. L- tell a, l- a little bit about your experience of being involved in municipal government while you were living in Wells. Well. Um, when did you start? When were you first? Well, I, sir, I was part of the original re- committee that looked into incorporation called the Restructure Committee. And uh, then I was part of the group that uh, tried to move that forward when the, re- the restructuring report came back actually saying that we couldn't incorporate. But um, we had a rather brilliant person in town by the name of Joseph Jordan who looked at the study and went, 
well, they've made a bunch of assumptions. They've made the assumption that we would operate like a larger community, but this is not really how we would operate it. And so he, he looked at the spreadsheets and rearranged the numbers a bit to show, you know, that we would actually, you know, not hire five people. We would hire three people and, okay. you yeah. know, things like that. Sure. We would, we would, jo- we would have, we would combine positions because we were a small community and various other cost savings and showed that we could incorporate. And then we had a vote and we did. And so we had our first election and I ran for council and I was elected and I was on council for 18 years. 18 years? 18 years, years yeah. In the time that it, there was uh, two or three year terms? Uh, it was three year terms. And that was one of the reasons I didn't run when, when I, it was actually two elections ago, I guess, mm-hmm. was, was the four year term. Changed to four year terms. And I knew I was going to retire in that time frame. And I thought, well, I just don't want to be tied down. <laughs> for that yeah and still being involved in municipal government i understand what you mean <laughs> as far as it's it's not a negative uh, uh implication of being tied down it's just you are committed to the community so yeah. you need to be there and be involved and when you have the luxury of being retired uh, your time should be yours yeah so when it comes to your own your story judy where can where does that start where were you born and where did you grow up well, I was born in Toronto, and I lived there till I was about seven. Then we moved west to Calgary, and that's when I got my first taste of being a Westerner mm-hmm. and always knew that I would always be a Westerner. We unfortunately moved back to Hamilton and Burlington and th- through my teen years I spent there, and then I went to the University of Guelph for my undergraduate degree, but came west the moment I graduated. And I lived, I lived in the Calgary area for a while and then came to British Columbia. And I've told you how I mm-hmm. actually ended up in Wells. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of never looked back when it came to leaving the East. Yeah? It, and it's not because you weren't fond of the East. It was just because the, the, the lure of the West was too great? Well, I'm not, you know, and I, I say the East, but it's really Central Canada. And I have to say I'm not fond of Central Canada. Oh, yeah, we all know <laughs> Toronto is the center of the world, Well, right? Toronto, I think, is, is, <laughs> is a great city. But, um, you know, Southern Ontario just seems to me to be a wasteland of light industry and shopping malls and, and, and just endless consumerism. And it just wasn't for you. It just definitely, definitely was not for me. Yeah. You, you you craved as many people do. You craved the uh, the wild, the yeah. the, the wild yeah. within you. Yeah, yeah. Someone has also mentioned uh, a connection to bagpipes. Ah, yes. Hi, <laughs> laddie. So, uh, so uh, where does this connection come in? Well, do you play them. I do play the pipes, and um, I apparently heard my first bagpipes when I was about two in the Santa Claus Parade. And went crazy and always wanted to learn to play the bagpipes. But my parents actually, although have they have Scottish and Irish heritage, didn't weren't part of that community and didn't know anyone that played the bagpipes. So I, I, I never had the opportunity until I was uh, 13. And we had just moved to Hamilton, Ontario. And it was my first day in a new class. And lo and behold, one of my classmates got up and played the bagpipes at the auditorium. Oh boy! So after that, so I I became a member of the Branch Fifty Eight Legion Pipe Band and the Murray Girls Pipe Band. We played all over Southern Ontario, and then 
when I went to university, unfortunately, I sort of put my pipes away. I carried them around with me all the time and played them sporadically. Sure, but yeah. the bagpipes are not an easy instrument to, um, to just sort of abandon and then pick up. Mm-hmm. It's not like a guitar and you just tune six, six strings. Unfortunately, it's a bit more complicated. And I was never <laughs> taught um, how to maintain the instrument, so I, I had great difficulties there. But um, So they have been always in the background. And then in, uh, in 2007, I went to Scotland and kind of got enthusiastic again. And I made a point of joining the little pipe band in Quenelle. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I also went to... There's a really fantastic piping school that happens at Silver Star Mountain, just outside of Vernon that's put on by the Simon Fraser University Pipe Band, which is um, one of the world's best pipe bands. Yeah, they're world-renowned. And I went to that, and uh, it was fantastic. So I started to take my piping more seriously. And then I I met one of the teachers there, and uh, we fell in love. And unfortunately, he lives in New York. Oh, yes, (laughs) okay. New York State, so I spend a large part of my time there, and he spends time here. And our lives revolve around playing the bagpipes. I just, I mean, I just got back from the very first ever Vermont Highland Games, that which was last weekend. That's where I was last weekend in Vermont. Wow, Um, St. Johnsbury, Vermont, for that played there, and then the week before that, we were in Cape Breton playing our small pipes. Well, that's great. Yeah, so bagpiping is a big part of my life now. Is that part of your Scottish heritage? I, 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 I'm well, sorry, I, you mentioned your parents and I missed Yeah, it. no, it's not, it, it's not direct for me. Um, obviously, I'm a Campbell. Um, mm-hmm. I've done some work on Ancestry.ca and found that my relatives were in, in Northern Ireland by the mid-1700s. So they probably left Scotland as part of the early clearances, which were when the tenant farmers were evicted from their land mm-hmm. and and were just, you know, sometimes just starved to death or set off on their own or whatever. But anyway, it's a very short hop from Argyll, which is sort of the seat of the Campbells, over to Northern Ireland. It's about 80 miles. So that's my theory as to... But I can't find out anything specifically. You know what I think is awesome is that even when it comes to your own family and your own lineage, that... The historical connection, that value for you is still there as much as it was for Barkerville. Right. Yes. Well, it would be wonderful to find out more because I often wonder, because I took to the pipes instantly and at such an early age, I kind of think, was there something in my genetic makeup you yeah. know, there that... It was does. in your blood, lass. Yeah, I must be in the blood. <laughs> <laughs> so you started your professional career with Barkerville. And then you wound up, you retired from your career also at Barkerville. So you've run the gamut there. What was that like? Well, it, that's, it was really interesting because I, I came and went quite a bit. So the first stint I started in 74 and I probably worked for about three and a half years. And in that time, as I mentioned, I was working on educational programs mostly. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, I actually went back uh, and did a master's degree in planning, and then I started my own consulting business. And I mainly I wor- I did that for eighteen years, and I mainly I did some work for Barkerville in that time period as a consultant, but I did a lot of work all over British Columbia and the Yukon. 
doing heritage management plans and various okay. other sort of heritage tourism planning things with communities. And uh, so, so, but before that, I think I had got to the point where I was in charge of visitor services. The position had morphed from just being an interpreter on the street then to being in charge of the interpreters and then later to being in charge of all the visitor programs and then taking this hiatus and being consultant and seeing a lot of other things in the province and then applying and getting the job as CEO. It certainly gave me this amazing perspective as to everything that Barkerville had been through, which sometimes was a really good thing and sometimes it was a really bad thing. <laughs> sure. Because sometimes I, I could say, you know, oh, well, I don't know. I, don't th- I think that's a bad idea because I knew it was a bad idea. Or, but sometimes it was a good idea, but I didn't have, you know, I was so locked into yeah. what we'd done before that I wasn't seeing a clear way forward. So I think it was both a asset and a, a liability. A blessing and a curse yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So your time as a, as a performer on the streets of Barkerville, for anyone that uh, either has been or has not been to Barkerville, there are uh, staff, there are performers who are in character in the the olden time, uh, you know, Gold Rush characters. Uh, what, who was the character you played, or did you play a variety? Well, ma- mostly I played Florence Wilson, which is now a character that um, Danette Boucher now plays. But in the early days, we we weren't doing first person interpretation. We were doing third person interpretation. So okay, we, telling we the story, of. telling the story of, and actually, it was myself that that introduced that idea because I, you know, which I got from other historic sites, which were which were doing that kind of interpretation. I thought it was a fantastic idea, and we should do it at Barkerville. So initially, the people who were interpreters weren't actors. We were, we were just we were historians and people that were interested in history, and we developed acting skills or and delivery skills, so, so to speak, doing tours and so forth. Mm-hmm. But we weren't in costume either initially. And I remember very well my first attempt to get costumes at Barkerville, and uh, be, and I remember I said we were being run by Parks and Recreation, mm-hmm. so. The, our manager also managed Bower and Lake Parks. He, he really wasn't a history buff, particularly. He, he, had he come up, he, Yeah, he had come up through the park system. So I went into his office, and I, and I had this wonderful pattern that was put out by the State Historical Society of Wisconsin for an 1875 dress. And it was the first historic pattern. Now they're common, but this one was the first one that, we'd ever found that was actually a historic pattern. We could actually sit down and sew a historic dress. And I said, I think, you know, we should, we should have the tour guides dressed this way. And his response was, we can't have these young women running around in long dresses. People will think they're hippies. <laughs> hippies? Well, it was oh, the 70s. Goodness. Well, I suppose, yeah. So anyway, we, we had a, a rather... Um, heated uh, discussion on that and in the end we put um, 
a really lovely older lady in a lo- in in the dress. Mm-hmm. We made the dress, uh, and and because no one would have ever mistaken her for a hippie, and it was a complete <laughs> success. the The visitors loved it, obviously, mm-hmm. and so we went from there. You know, that was the sort of first step forward to getting costumed interpretation, and then finally working into doing first person interpretation. I think the visitors to Barkerville still very much enjoy that entertainment value that the street performers put on. So if that's something that you can maybe take a little bit of credit for, I want to thank you and congratulate <laughs> you for it because it's, it is incredibly entertaining. And that's the thing that I think many people, many people both value and those that haven't been there miss from other attractions is having that person that you can reach out and touch or engage with and interact with who is in character. There is Billy Barker, who is a character in Barkerville. There are a number of street performers who are historical uh, people from the history of Barkerville who are there to give life to those stories. And so it really is engaging and entertaining. It is, and but I would say it's been a bit of a struggle to find where we are now. At first, you know, I think there was a bit of a, a, a push and pull between between the acting and the historian side of things. And so I think now Barkerville has really come to terms with that, and the people that work there aren't just saying lines. You know, they are interested in the history. They are researching the history constantly and coming up with Danette particularly uh, uh, amazes me with it. And Richard Wright is -hmm. another one that runs the theater. Roy, he was actually an interpreter on the street at the time that I was managing the interpreters. And he's always been so interested in the history and trying to bring different aspects of it into the fore. So, so now we have this wonderful blend of not only presentation skills, but also in-depth historical knowledge. So when you go to Barkerville, you're not, you know, I've been to historic sites where you've got a summer student reciting lines. Exactly. It's, it's not right. like that mm-hmm. at all. This is people who, who know in-depth their subject. So in conclusion, I think, you know, because we're now at a point where we're out of time, I uh, last question I have for you is besides piping and now traveling back and forth to see your your uh, your new love, what are you doing in retirement? Oh, well, I try to get into the outdoors quite as much as I can. I still love uh, skiing. I don't do much backcountry skiing anymore, but I do lots of cross-country skiing. Um, so that I would say those are my main. And, and now I'm trying to download all the junk I've collected in my many years. <laughs> <laughs> as in like having garage sales or well i will be having a major garage sale this spring <laughs> <laughs> all right okay well that's great hopefully nothing in there from barkerville's history I'm no sure. no there isn't <laughs> <laughs> well uh judy thank you again for taking the time i know you're on the road to go back to your home in wells the same little house that you've lived in there same, for my same little house it doesn't look at all the same no it's, i'm it's, sure it's been had a full basement added and a new roof line and been added on the back and yeah but terrific. it's still my little $300 house we won't mention the many dollars I put into it since well I'm sure even if it's uh, $300 or $3,000 it's still a pretty affordable life living in Wells it is well thank you again for joining me today if you like what you heard 
Make sure to like and subscribe by hitting both those buttons below on our YouTube channel. And remember, you can subscribe to the show in its pure podcast form on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and most other platforms where you get your podcasts. For more information on the Caribou Chilcote and Coast region of BC, make sure to visit landwithoutlimits.com and you can follow them on their social media platforms as well. And that's all for our characters episode for today. Thank you again, Judy. I'm Jason Ryle, and thanks for listening.